0: knockback is brought to you by well you if you want to learn how to support our show go to (laughs) collinslaststand.com greetings and salutations welcome back to knockback my name is colin moriarty i'm joined as always by my brother dagan versus moriarty dagan (laughs) thank you so much for being here today how are you welcome to a very special episode of knockback you know why it's
1: special Kyle, because they're all special. You should know this. Wow.
0: You should. I didn't anticipate that. <laughs> you didn't even give me a chance to think about it. You just kind of <laughs> sprung, sprung it on me. Oh, so, my I didn't God. Know. You, you, I don't know if I would have come to that conclusion.
1: <laughs> Let's say you would have. Let's just agree. Yeah. Now, I'm going to be a little crazy on this episode, and let me tell you why. I'm running an experiment this week. I don't think this was the week or even the time period to conduct this experiment in, but I decided to do it anyway. A little crazy. I haven't had caffeine in three days now. It's been over three days at the time of this recording, actually. And why I decided this was I, I may have told you this before, Kyle. I'm not a headache guy. Like, I'm not a guy who typically, gratefully gets headaches. You know, thankfully, I'm not afflicted by that thing, migraines or otherwise, what, like, a, like many people are. But I found probably in dribs and drabs over the last couple of years that if I don't have coffee regularly, like let's say I have my first cup between nine and 10 in the morning, then I have a couple of cups throughout the later in the morning, early afternoon or whatever. If I don't have my two or three cups by a certain time, I get headaches. I was finding I would get a headache. I might have found this at mom's house actually, because she doesn't have down in Virginia visiting she doesn't have a keurig, she doesn't have one of the K Cup maker things, and that's what I use. so typically, I won't have coffee because I'm very picky about the coffee and how it tastes. I don't like brewing it in a traditional glass pot and you know, the, the old school mister. coffee coffee makers they don't cut it for me. so that's probably when I discovered it, and I, I was like, "Why am I getting headaches and I would they would be pretty pretty rampant headaches. It would hurt behind my eyes. And then I realized it's because you don't have caffeine in your system and your body's going through like a caffeine withdrawal. So I said, this week, I'm going to have my coffee, delicious Trader Joe's medium roast, but decaf. And this, let me see, let me sort of vet this once and for all, if this is really my problem. And it is. As soon as I went through that first day, I would say the first day by five dinner time, say, I already had the headaches. And I was like, wow. And they'd just been like, It's just been this sort of this flat sort of um, I don't know this like it's not a really it's not a sharp pain but more of just an elongated sort of tension and, and just this mild headache that I just have consistently it doesn't go away so I'm gonna reintroduce caffeine back into my system tomorrow with regular caffeinated coffee and see maybe do a little Starbucks or something and just see if that's what it is and i'm pretty sure that's what it is you know right now again it's like it's like sort of rounded off headache it's not really sharp pain but it's not really a good time to be doing it with distance learning and work being so busy and all that kind of stuff but i just thought i would give it a shot and i'm not sure if i could really function without the caffeine i have to say i think i'm just going to have to go in for being a caffeine addict just kind of relinquish myself to that reality and just say okay that's what it is accept it and move on with your caffeine so you could function properly like a human. (laughs) So that's... that's, And at the same time, I'm kind of in the throes of animating a bunch of stuff this week for work, and I decided I think I was kind of inspired by our Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse discussion, and I, I started animating some stuff on Ones and just giving myself that extra labor coupled with no caffeine in my system. It's just not been a good... It's not a good formula for a, for a week and for a functioning dad and animator and husband and all that stuff. So my sympathies to my family, my sympathies potentially to you guys listening. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I have delicious iced coffee here, but it's not caffeinated. Maybe if I just in my head tell myself that there's caffeine in this cup, I don't know. We'll see how it is. But now, how are you, Kyle? How are you doing? Have you, how's the eye? Are you wearing an eye patch currently? Bring me no. up to speed on your week.
0: No, no, I patch No, everything's fine. We're recording and publishing this late on Patreon because uh, I had to go to the uh, retinal specialists, not the rectal specialist, but the <laughs> retinal specialist. I would love to go to the rectal specialist, get a little po- poking and prodding yeah, going on over would. there. But but uh, no, everything's fine. I I have this weird kind of I don't know if it's like a growth or like a collection of cells, basically dead blood cells in my left eye. And they're just kind of keeping an eye on it. But. There's some indication that it could that that being there can mean that I could have some problems elsewhere in my body, and just to be safe. but basically problems that can cause, I guess, aneurysms. So they are going to maybe give me a cat scan and go from there, but I'm just waiting to hear back. I'm not incredibly worried about it, to be honest, but we'll see how it goes. But I was totally like blind on Wednesday for some time, so, Couldn't do the show that day. And then yesterday was Sacred Symbols Day, so we had a kick knock back to here. But here we are, of course, our weekly retro and nostalgia podcast sponsored by 10,000 of you over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. Thank you for your kind support. You can get early ad free access, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas to our show, submit your topic ideas and vote on others. And we even added a new perk this week for it'll ultimately be for five dollar patrons right now it's for ten dollar patrons only just so we can test it out. But we've made a discord server for CLS and people are really enjoying that. And I still don't really understand discord, but that's Dustin's thing. So
1: <laughs> that's cool. That's awesome. I don't so, get yeah. it at all. Not at all.
0: He's he's young. Let's leave it to the youngins. Yeah, exactly. People have been asking for this for years, literally. And I finally relented. And we have hundreds of people in the server already, which is great News. I've been I've been just poking around it a little bit. It's basically like a chat room organized by like hashtags and all sorts of stuff. It's fine. It's interesting. I know that people are young. Like you said, younger, the younger kids are into it. So we want to remain young and boisterous at heart. (laughs) here on Collins. Last Stand. now, Dig, I I kick it over to you typically here. But we're going now a couple of weeks without an opening segment, right? Because we're resetting everything. Am am I right about that or am I wrong about that? Shh,
1: Kyle. Can you hear that? An eerie quiet has fallen over these hallowed battlegrounds now, but if you listen closely, listen, you can almost hear those phantom battle cries, the wailing of the defeated and the half-crazed howling of the victorious. Here lay the shattered remains of pencils, the charred husks of so many notebooks singed And tattered pages blowing in the wind. And upon that very breeze, Kyle, are carried those telltale sounds of battle, of battles, long since fought. We've paid tribute to our vanquished, and we've celebrated those who have managed to claim victory as we await now for final judgment in this very podcast Coliseum. I hope you'll find the courage to join us. Kyle, this is technically... Week eleven, a bye week, if you will, a fan versus fan. Right. We have very, we have almost nothing going on, but I do have to just quickly announce our week nine Twitter poll results for our week nine battle. That was our Marvel, or uh, yeah, technically an MCU topic. That was from our Spider Man, our Spider Verse into the Spider Verse episode. Now, Kyle, week nine, we have our battle between Matthew Danielson. And Aiden Wilson, so it was Matthew versus Aiden. Matthew came out in our closest battle yet, week nine. We have one more result to announce next week. Matthew came out 55% to 45%. So far, I think our closest battle was 60-40. So we're even closer now with a 55 to 45. So congratulations to both of you guys. Matthew Danielson versus Aiden Wilson. I like to say, actually, Matthew Danielson. If you will, I think that should be wow. his. I think that should be his handle. I don't know why he didn't wow. think of this, Matthew. You could have that one for free. Next one's on you, though, Matthew Danielson or Matthew Danielson. Congratulations for your victory. Congratulations to both our contestants, Kyle. Week ten, our winner will be announced. Our final winner will be announced last uh, next week, rather, and then we take you guys. We sort of thrust you into the future on how we're going to wrap up this topic. What are we going to do? How is it going to end? It's going to be very exciting, I can tell you that. And the final round should be a lot of fun. And um, we'll talk about it more next week. I have it all planned out. And then after that is over, we could usher in our new opening segment. Got a new closing segment today, but that's for later. But Kyle, that's it. That's it for Fan versus Fan today. We could jump right in whenever you're ready.
0: All right. Well, thank you, by the way, for whatever that Washington Irving... <laughs> poem was that you read at the beginning.
1: <laughs> that was off the top of my head. That was just a little thing I thought of at spur yeah, of I, moment. Yeah,
0: I bet. I bet it was. <laughs> so today's topic is a random one that I've always wanted to do on this show because I really love this film. It's the 1979 film Kramer versus Kramer. And this movie came out in very late 1979, December 19th, 1979. It was made for eight million dollars in money, you know, 1979 money. So pretty nice budget for a drama. And then it made over a hundred, a hundred million dollars at the box office. And this was the 1980 winner of, or the 52nd Academy Award winner for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay, amongst other awards, including Golden Globes for pretty much all of those. And so this is a really beloved movie with film fans, but not really a movie that I don't think is very well known with younger audiences. And I don't think that I would have ever heard of it, if not for the exposure I received from this movie in high school from a teacher we often talk about on this show, Mrs. Parry, who was our English teacher. And I don't know yes. if it was in honors English or if it was in AP English. It was in one of those classes where she showed us this film and it was something that really resonated and hit home with me. I'm a really big fan of this movie. This is one of my favorite dramas ever. I think it speaks to me in a very personal way because of the subject matter. And it's, I think, a movie that, again, a lot of the audience isn't exposed to. And we actually see that in the thread for the topic. We usually we sometimes get more than 100 submissions for this one. We got, I think, fewer than 20. Okay, And. Some of them were saying that they hadn't even heard of it and then they went and watched it and they loved it, which is awesome. But we do have a few inquiries from the audience that we can integrate into here as it makes sense. But I'm curious what your story is with this movie. If you even remember, you were six years old when this came out, so you obviously didn't see it at that time. But I'm wondering what you make of this film. And you can talk to us a little bit about what it's about. I think it's pretty straightforward in that way. But there are there's obviously a ton of subtext. And this movie is really predicated on. Amazing acting, really great cinematography and a lot of improv as well that makes the movie really work. But I'm wondering what you thought of this film and what it's about. And and I really am curious when you first were introduced to it.
1: Yeah, I had to think about that one. Actually, I had seen it. I knew it was on your list. I know this movie. You really hold this movie up and you really do love this movie. I was happy to see it on your list. And I was really happy because it was the last one on your list of whatever this is, wave 14 or 15 of knockback mm-hmm. that. When I was vetting my new list, you were like, oh, I got one. We got one more. We didn't do Kramer versus Kramer yet. And I was excited because I hadn't seen it in a while. And you said it so perfectly. I'm really excited for this one because it's really true. It's one of those rare, kind of rare instances for you and I where we could actually turn our listeners onto something that they've never seen or maybe never even heard of. This is not, you know, a quote unquote nerd centric piece of media, as is our want or as is at least our usual mo with the show, but it's such a good movie. I watched it two more times just for you know researching and watching it again to do the episode with you, and it's it's just a wonderful piece of media. I have to say for you guys out there, it's free right now if you have Amazon Prime, so it's free on Amazon videos. So check it out, and also don't listen to this if you haven't if you haven't watched the movie. It doesn't seem like on its surface that it would be uh, a movie that's sort of, um, that that could be spoiled by talking about it, but it actually is because it's really important to be strung along by the drama of how this thing is going to turn out, you know, essentially a custody battle. So definitely watch it. And also because I think a lot of Dustin Hoffman's method acting in it leaves you on edge. Um, Not because he's an edgy character. In fact, he's quite a likable character, I think, and we'll get into that, very appealing. But you just don't know in the throes of such a real human drama, how people and characters and everything are going to react scene to scene. And even watching it multiple times, you're left with that feeling of like, wow, I wonder how he's going to react here. He reacts, you know, sometimes he's really cool. And sometimes he, he, you know, obviously it's a very visceral reaction to being left and to a, to a parent leaving and being left alone with a child and all that kind of stuff. So definitely worth watching unspoiled. And I have to say, Really a film that, besides being a great movie, if you're a movie buff, and anchored by amazing performances from A to Z, amazing performances, but I find myself relating to the film in multiple ways. One, as a son of divorced parents, of course, we talk about that on the show. Two, as a parent and as a dad myself, and then even boring down to get a little more specific, three, even going in so far as being in a marriage where both people You know, my spouse and I are both engaged in creative professions. Helene is an art teacher, but she's also a professional illustrator and a showing fine artist who's very busy with painting right now, actually. And those professions could be very demanding. And a lot of that is in the movie. And it really, to me, speaks of real life of having a creative profession and trying to, you know, seeing the movie. And thinking about this in, a lot in my own life, seeing the movie try to center on and pay attention to striking a balance between work and family. You know, where you you're trying to always do that in any profession. In any, we're all busy, but in a, a creative profession, that's very demanding of your time, and perhaps where you it's an over forty hour work week commitment. It's just very. This movie really speaks of that to me of, of trying to be mindful of that balance between you know between career and family, essentially. And this movie really reminds me of that. It's a great lesson for me. And I love to hear how it started for you, Kyle, because I I didn't know the first time you saw this movie. This movie predates you being born by five years. Like you mentioned, I was a freshly minted six-year-old when it came out, so I was really young. And I think the first time I saw it was probably... I'm a bit of a film buff. I, I love to watch movies. And I think where I first saw it was probably sometime in the aughts, The early to mid aughts, so before I had kids, before Helene and I had our first kid, and it was probably on one of the movie channels, whether it was Cinemax, HBO, or Showtime. You know that they play all the newer blockbustery type things, but then they filter in some some movies from the past too. Just and this really smacks to me of a film buff's film. You know, it's just a really great film, amazing direction. Very simple, very serviceable, but amazing acting. And I think I must have saw it at HBO or Showtime on one of those at that time. And it was one of those movies, sort of like the way I discovered some other older films from the 70s. I think The French Connection, Dog Day Afternoon, you know, just playing them on the cable channels for people to discover. And I loved it. And I saw it a couple of times and now I saw it a couple more times. So probably saw it four four times all told at this point. And never gets boring, never gets old. Really well-paced, really entertaining very dramatic, heart-wrenching. I I defied myself not to cry this time upon watching it this time. I did. So I can't wait to get, you know, get into it with you. This is a little bit of a different topic for us. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Very well said. I think that this film in a a lot of ways is the, well, let me back up. I I think there's a lot of things that affect all of us in our lives, psychologically, subconsciously, that we just don't acknowledge or know. And that's where a lot of prevailing psychological wisdom comes from about why you feel this way, because this thing happened to you when you were a kid or you had this experience or whatever. And I think my connection to Kramer versus Kramer really itches that sort of primitive, untouched brain inside of me that remembers this happening to me in some way. And that, I think, is why it touches me so much, because I don't want to say that it's A to A here. I don't think that the experiences of the Kramers in this movie are perfect for a perfect analog for my own experience as a child of divorce. But I am about Billy's age when it happened to me. Yeah, our mom did leave our dad. My dad, our dad did take care of me while mom was kind of gone and finding herself and figuring things out. And there's a lot of there's just an incredible amount of parallels there. Uh, based on uh, a man overworking and neglecting his wife, but also a woman maybe not realizing the amount of work and stress and toil that goes into bringing home the bacon, as uh, Dustin Hoffman says over and over again in the movie. So I think there's something about that. And I think one of the things that I've noticed on repeat viewings of this film, and I have a lot of notes about this film that I wanted to talk about, but one of the things that I really like about this movie is that it repeats itself. It's got a, a rhythm to it that... I don't know that many films that at least that I like have this movie goes out of its way to repeat scenes basically over and over again to show you the evolution of the characters in the same situations. And I think that that's a really clever way to tell the story and is a really linear and literal way to tell the story as well, because it shows you it doesn't leave anything up to the imagination. It it shows you how Ted is becoming a better father. It shows you how Billy is becoming more acclimated. It shows you uh, all of these kinds of things about Ted's uh, employment situation at the Madison Avenue advertising firm he works out and it works out in all of that so there's that aspect of it that I really like and then the other part of it I really like is looking at this film from or through the lens of when it was filmed and released this movie was fil- you know kind of produced and filmed in 78 and 79 it was released as I said in late 1979 and this is a time of social change in the United States this is a time of like post woman's lib when women really are out into the world, but they're not quite equal when they're eager and anxious to find a life for themselves outside of the home and away from their husbands and their kids and all of that. But it's still kind of nuclear in the United States in terms of the family structure. So it's a time of change. And this movie does one thing that I think is really interesting is that from my perspective, it really paints one of the parents as a good guy and it really paints one of the parents as a bad guy. And it's hard to work your way out of that. And it's worth noting that this movie is based on a book, a a 1977 novel by an American author named Avery Corman called Kramer vs. Kramer. And apparently in that book, the character of Joanna Stern, Joanna Kramer, that Meryl Streep plays in this film is apparently even colder and more distant than she is in this film. But I think that those different things make this film so interesting, the the repetition and the rhythm, the socio-political realization of men and women in the late 70s in America and then kind of painting the man as the good guy and the mom, the, girl, the woman as the bad guy, even though that's usually to this day not the way a divorce proceeding, no matter what the cause, is typically adjudicated. And I think that that's one of the famous ways that men are unequal to women in society. It's not a really meaningful thing because it's not something everyone has to go through or even is exposed to. But for all of the inequity that women experience, this movie actually shows us one of the prevailing inequities that men experience. And that's ma- namely going to court, losing your child by proxy of being a man versus a woman. And I love that Dustin Hoffman talks about that. And in 1979, this is a pretty forward thinking and progressive film for doing that. Today, it might be actually the, the exact opposite. It might actually be considered a more right wing film in a lot of ways, which is funny because it wasn't that at all, especially Dustin Hoffman being famously liberal. So let me throw it over to you, Dig. I have a few notes here that I wanted to get into, but just to to structure the film for folks, again, this movie's about divorce. It stars Dustin Hoffman, famous American actor, as Ted Kramer. He wins, actually, his first of two Best Actor Academy Awards for this movie. He won his other one in 1988 for Rain Man, which is another... Fantastic film, I'm sure will do. Uh, He's been nominated for that award seven times. He also won the Golden Globes for those, and he is an advertising. I don't know if he's like a mid tier executive, but he works on Madison Avenue. He's all about his work, and he's married to Joanna, played by Meryl Streep, who we only see in the very beginning of the film, and then we don't see her again until about 45 minutes into the film. Yeah, which I I love stuff like that. She won Best Supporting Actress for her role as Joanna. In this movie, this is one of her very first roles in anything. She was later nominated and won Best Actress for Sophie's Choice, obviously, in 1983. She's been nominated for Best Actress Academy Awards 17 times, by the way, and won again in 2012 for The Iron Lady. And they have a child named Billy, played by Justin Henry, who was nominated for both the Golden Globe and Best Supporting Actor Academy Award for this role as well which is interesting. He later goes on to play Mike Baker in 16 Candles, so people would know him from that. And he had stints on ER and Lost as well. But he plays their young child, six, seven years old, uh, five, six, seven years old, somewhere in there, because the movie takes place almost over almost two years. And it's about him kind of being abandoned by his mom and his his executive workaholic dad has to now take care of him. And then about how the mom kind of tries to reingratiate herself into their lives and comes back. So that's kind of the synopsis of it. But I'm curious, Dick, you brought up Dustin Hoffman and his notorious method acting. It's worth noting and we can talk about later that he apparently wasn't great to work with on this film. Not only from Meryl Streep's perspective, but from others as well. And I think there's actually some specific things that people have said about him working on this. I think Meryl Streep has even claimed that he like groped her when he first met her for this role which is crazy. So want to throw those things out there as well as all of this Me Too kind of stuff still permeates sure. the landscape, depending on when you listen to it. So talk to me a little bit about Dustin Hoffman's performance and the, the role of Ted Kramer and, and how you think he comports himself here in this film.
1: Oh, man, I mean, I went down. We talk about Dustin Hoffman, pre-1980s Dustin Hoffman. And of course, he did iconic, legendary performances in the 80s, Tootsie, Rain Man, of course, Spielberg's Hook wag the dog. And of course, we know him as his comedic turns and meet the Fockers on all the concurrent proceeding Fockers vehicles that came, came later. But you think about, I went through a real Dustin Hoffman phase probably about 20 years ago, starting with actually The Graduate in the late 60s. I think that was 67. Of course, the Mike Nichols masterpiece. The Graduate could definitely be a topic, a knockback topic. But The Graduate Midnight Cowboy in the late 60s. And then there's a really odd movie. I want to recommend it to you guys. Not many people know of it. It's a Sam Peckinpah movie. Pretty harsh. A little rapey. It's it's Sam Peckinpah, after all. 1971's Straw Dogs, which, you know, of course, proceeds this by a little bit. And Dustin Hoffman is so good in that movie. But I bring it up because somebody has it posted on YouTube right now. It's a very hard movie to get, to find, or to even watch somewhere. Somebody has it posted on YouTube in full HD, full movie. I think it's a two-hour long movie. Definitely go watch it if you love Dustin Hoffman. It's it's an amazing film. I'll say no more about it. It's very odd. It's a very odd movie, but really one worth watching if you love Hoffman, if you love his his method acting, his sort of immersive acting style. And then, of course, 1974's Lenny, the Bob Fosse-produced Lenny Bruce biopic where Dustin Hoffman plays Lenny Bruce. Historic comic in Long Islander, by the way. And then, of course, Kramer versus Kramer. There's the, Just those five movies alone, you could have a master class in acting, each with a different director. I love what Dustin Hoffman brings to a role, especially of this era when he's a little younger. He has a real appeal, a charm, and a warmth, but also just one of those movies like Meryl Streep, who we'll talk about, one of those actors, rather, like Streep, who will really take you out of, you know the the movie theater or take you out of the living room and immerse you in a story and just have you forgetting that you're watching a film. He really has that power and it's really striking because if you think of someone like Dustin Hoffman or Meryl Streep, you know that face, they've done so many projects, they're movie stars, they're iconic legendary people, you know, they're they're just supernovas. You know, and they, the way they could sort of just kind of melt into a role like that, and you forget that you're watching a Dustin Hoffman, is just amazing to me. And he really brings that in this. And I wonder about it, Kyle, because the movie does vilify the mom character, the Meryl Streep character, the Joanna character, a little bit, especially in the be- beginning, before you get an understanding of why. What is the impetus? What is the catalyst for her leaving him and leaving the child? Before you know all that, and you really don't know that until very late in the movie. In fact, I don't think you really know until the courtroom scene, which is very late in the movie. But it's almost an unfair advantage given to Hoffman, as great as his performance is, because we're just really drawn to him and we sympathize and empathize with the character, not only because he's being left but because of the way he handles it, you know, he has his freakouts, he has his moments where he has his meltdowns and his anger comes out, and it's visceral. But for a large part of the movie, from soup to nuts, all the way from the beginning to the end, he's pretty fair with the mom as far as explaining it and translating the stuff to his little boy and telling him about what happens. He doesn't vilify the mother, really. he really doesn't. The only sort of um conversations he has that are a little more um, on the surface are with the best friend character. We haven't talked about the mom's best friend. So the otherwise he doesn't really vilify the wife for leaving. And he's pretty, you know, he's pretty, I think he handles it in a pretty admirable, admirable way. I think if you take the, the character of Ted Kramer, you know, he's this husband, he's this dad, this advertising creative, almost on an exec level as Colin said, hailing originally from Brooklyn, so this New York couple, and he's definitely a company man, You know, perhaps a workaholic, dwells mainly on his job, it seems, but he's a man who's, when we meet him, he's rather one-sided and one-dimensional. You know, he knows how to be a good advertising creative. He knows how to be a good art director. He's probably an aspiring creative director if he's not there already, so he's really concerned with climbing up the ladder of Madison Avenue. You know, 70s era Madison Avenue, very power, powerful, lots of money there. You know, and, and also there's a, there's a scene, a really interesting scene right in the beginning where he's talking to his boss about when he first got promoted to assistant art director on the agency level. And he, he, he says later on he started down in the mailroom. So he's this upwardly mobile Don Draper type, right? And he's talking about getting, you know, a little money now, a little prestige, and he's shopping. On Park Avenue for a Burberry coat, and you have this sense of okay, he's this young or youngish creative type climbing the ladder, and he's got these motives, th- these yuppieish motives, talking about this Burberry coat and how he was so scared buying this thing for the first time, this first expensive purchase he ever made, this p- the, probably the priciest thing he ever bought at one time, and you wonder like how much of it is these. Upper class aspirations versus just bringing home the bacon and making the ends meet. But in any event, we all go through that. We all aspire to success. We also aspire aspire to a better station in life, more money, a better house, a better place to live, a better school school district for your kids, whatever it is. So for me, a lot of it's trying to kind of suss out like what what are his motivations. But the cool thing about the character is when we initially meet him, he's very sort of one dimensional. But he goes on this journey, and we go on the adventure with him to basically learn how to become a parent and learn how to become more emotionally available, especially to his son, and how to become a more well rounded person and not sort of just be so hung up on the career, on Madison Avenue, on his station, on his position, on his job. So, you know, and that speaks to me as someone who's a workaholic and someone who's very um, puts a lot of emphasis on his job and doing a good job and doing the best I can all the time. And hopefully doing some of the best work out of all the people I work with and all that kind of stuff, you know, being very sort of candid with you right now and saying that, you know, and I think I see a lot of myself in that. And this movie is actually, I, I sort of, um, there's some of me that aspires to be a little more like Ted because he's a little more, I think he's a little more cool, calm and collected than I would be. In that situation. So Dustin Hoffman is a great character to bring to sort of play this part, you know, to personify this part and bring it to the screen, because I think he does elicit a lot of sympathy. And I think he just he's we really sympathize for him because of his appeal and how he's handling things and how he's learning and how he's sort of open to changing and how that change must be hard. You know, of being somebody who's been so set on his job and set in his ways about "I'm gonna bring home, bring home the bacon." It's all about work, and you just have to wait. You know that whole exchange with Joanna when he comes home and he's he, he's coming home from a long night of work. He's already been there extra hours, and he comes home and he jumps right on the phone when she's trying to talk to him. So you could already sort of get the sense of what she's been put through over the last decade, and it's a great. Way to start the conversation, too, because we'll talk about more about her when she comes, as Colin said, 45 minutes or so into the film when we get to learn a little more about her. But Dustin Hoffman, I I couldn't even think of a better person to play this part. And he just has that. I don't even know if the if the actor has lost some of that sort of magnetism and some of that appeal. But this is what he had in the 70s going into the 80s. He was just so fun to watch.
0: Yeah, he's awesome. He's almost frenetic on screen. And. I do love how the movie encapsulates his selfishness and myopia so much in the beginning and to the point where and I ruined my notes here where she can't even leave him because at like when she wants to because he's, as you said, just totally ignoring her. So it's not to say that he's not at fault here. It's to say that I still think that the character of Joanna is kind of the antagonist in some way. In this because because she leaves her kid not because she leaves ted kramer himself and there's that great scene in the beginning before she goes away for a little while in the film and we kind of experience 45 minutes or so without her where and it's a wonderfully shot scene where they're talking in the elevator and he's kind of begging her not to go and he she's kind of listing off these 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 different things that she feels and then she says and i don't love you anymore and the door shuts and I I I love that shot and and actually the first shot in the movie one of the first shots in the movie is really great too because she's in Billy's bedroom she knows she's leaving she's got her hand on her uh, her head on her in her in her left hand and you see her wedding ring in the shot there's a lot of really cool shots like that in this film and then she disappears and we we watch these two men come together these, these this boy and this man into a unit which I think is so heartwarming and. I like it because not only because of the perspective I said of the socio-political stuff happening in the late 70s in America, but also because I think to this day men are much more accepted as being good, good fathers and important role models and all of that. And I think that happened with beginning with the birth of generation X, you're a gen Xer. And so is Billy in this movie, a child of a baby boomer. And I think that it's that generation that started being stopped being so hard and started being a little softer with their kids But you still don't really see a father son relationship portrayed very often like this. And it's often a mama's boy, right? Or daddy's girl kind of situation. If you see things in film and in fiction more often than that, which is natural. And I think that it's natural for a a boy to be more attached to his mom and a girl to be more attached to his dad. There's just something about that. I think that that's normal, but it's just nice to see a perspective of a, a man doing his best and kind of throwing it all away in a uh, professionally in order to care for and love his son. And even though he's frustrated in the beginning, he kind of takes it on board immediately. It's there's not we don't really see everything, obviously, because this movie does take place. It's one hundred and six minutes in a little less than two years, I think. And so we don't get to see, obviously, nearly everything. But I do feel like Dustin Hoffman takes the world on his shoulders pretty quickly in this film in the role of Ted and does a pretty admirable job with the hand he is dealt with a little bit of help from his neighbor, which we said. And we'll talk about her played by Jane Alexander. Margaret Phelps is her name in the film. And, of course, navigating everything with his boss at work, who's just really not understanding of the situation. And that kind of shows a changing of the times. It's funny we're talking about Madison Avenue because we love Mad Men so much, which takes place on Madison Avenue as well, hence Mad Men. And we don't really see this in that film or in that show at all. It's still very much the the world of the greatest generation and the baby boomers are still young and kind of coming into their own. But there's an evolution here. So we kind of get to see a straddling of the line, like the two strata. If you cut a rock open or something like that and you get to see one and then the the kind of older sediment underneath it that's what we're seeing here so i think that there's a lot of real nuance it, it, may, it makes me and i've always felt this way it makes me want to read the book i've never read the book and i've, I've i'm interested in doing that because i want to see how they're portrayed in that but yeah me too i really love, i really do love dustin hoffman's performance in this Let's talk a little bit. I mean, we brought her up, so we might as well talk about her, even though she doesn't come up until later. For the most part, Meryl Streep's character of Joanna, again, Best Supporting Actress Academy Award for this role. I wrote it down in my notes just to be clear. She's in the movie in the very beginning, and then we don't see her until 47 minutes. And at that point, we see her just kind of spying on them outside of like a cafe. And then we see her at 52 minutes in the bar scene. That's when we first hear from her again. So much of this movie, again, doesn't take place with her in it. But I think she does a really admirable for performance in this. This, again, was a pretty early role for her and understanding what she was going through in her real life. I think her fiance had just left her or something, and she also wasn't the first or second choice for this role. And so there's a lot of that going into this as well, plus the intimidation of Dustin Hoffman. There have been some recasts. Dustin Hoffman, apparently somewhat difficult to work with on this film and intimidating even, I think, to some people. But she really holds her own. And I do like this character partially because even though you feel for her, you don't see enough of her own story to empathize with her very much because we understand basically what's what she's going through. I think she's mentally ill. She seems like she's probably clinically depressed. This was, of course, in a generation where those kinds of things weren't openly talked about. But she does talk about how she got a a, a psychologist when she is in court later on. But she's clearly struggling. She's clearly sad and unhappy. And you have to be pretty unhappy and sad to leave your own child in the lurch like that. And I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying that it's a very compelling performance. And I don't ever really root or sympathize with her. And I, even though I'm not crazy about the ending of the movie, and we can talk about that later, I do like that she ends up basically losing. And I don't know if you share that sentiment with me, but I'm curious what you think about Meryl Streep's performance and the character of Joanna Kramer.
1: Oh, man, she's so good. I mean, Meryl Streep is one of those actors who you just you want her to not be so good because of all the acclaim, all the lauding, all the hype, how wonderful she is. But she's just that good. I mean, she's the ultimate chameleon. And just flipping through her filmography as I was researching, and even right now, I realize I haven't even seen enough of her movies. She's She's been busy between television and and especially film. She's done a lot and she's played like every role imaginable, you know, every type of character, every type of personality, every era. She's done it all. And she's always amazing. And again, she does kind of play second fiddle to Dustin Hoffman again, because Hoffman is really the main character. He's in it a lot more, a lot more screen time, but also because you're, you're just drawn again, just your, your sympathies and your empathies. You're drawn to Hoffman's character because he's the, he's the spouse being left and she's leaving. And it's pretty icy in the beginning because we're kind of thrust into it. Now, over the course of the movie, again, we get the sense that it's really intimated that she's been sort of put through the ringer with, you know, basically embracing a life or trying to embrace a life that she was probably talked into. And you can envision Ted, right? He's a Madison Avenue ad man, you know, putting on the whole dog and pony show when they're a little younger, like wooing a client. You know, like, okay, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be great. I'm going to go to the office. You're going to you're going to stay back and be the housewife and you're going to take care of the kids and you're going to be home. And also we learn later on that she comes from a very similar background with her schooling and her profession. She works in the creative field as well. Now, when we meet her later on during the courtroom era modern times in the film she is a sportswear designer but i i believe she comes from madison avenue as well with her design chops and everything so ostensibly she left a very similar career to what her husband ted currently has that could have caused a lot of resentment i would imagine but you could just see ted t- you know kind of talking her into it and pacifying her and saying okay this is how it's going to be and even though it does seem very icy from the beginning and cold And, you know, you have to hand it to Meryl Streep for playing the Joanna character because she plays it so well. She really seems conflicted. And then later on, you have to also realize this is something, this this must be a really challenging character to play because essentially what you're doing when you leave a marriage like this, when you walk out, especially with kids, is that, and I know people very close to me that have gone through this. So, I could talk about it with some sort of authority and guessing what they must have been going through. And it's, you see that these people are afflicted by a severe crisis. And it's almost like they're paralyzed mentally and physically by this sense of being trapped into a life that they probably were just trying to talk themselves into, that they were unhappy with all along, but trying to give it their best go, you know? And I think that's what you have with the Joanna characters that you have you know, basically this, this sense comes crashing down. You're like, wow, I only get a chance to do this once. You only live once. I'm actually unhappy and I've been unhappy for a long time and I have to get, well, the getting is good. And I think because you're so, I think you're just in this mental state of almost like a panic. I really think it's almost like a panic of like, wow, I'm already, you know, this age, I'm already, let's say 35. I haven't done anything I wanted to do, and." to to actually to to leave your children something i can't personally relate to but that's what i imagine it is it's like this out of and maybe i'm just blessed that i haven't gone through that you know it's like this out of body sensation and this sort of compulsion to to run essentially and try to achieve. it's it's like not even a thought out thing it's a very visceral thing of like just run And get away from my current situation so I could find happiness. And it is almost like a panic. And the tragic thing about it is the results of that panic and that fleeing is sort of cast down on everybody who depends on you, everybody in your life, husband, children, parents. You know, I I imagine I always talk about what grandma and grandpa must have been going through when mom and dad got divorced and how hard it must have been for them in a whole other way of, of seeing it from, you know... A three hundred and sixty degree perspective of everybody in that person's life, but Meryl Streep, man, she's just amazing. Do we talk about that one scene, Cobb? I'm sure we were going to get to it, but where she kind of comes, she goes away ostensibly. We find out she she basically flees to California and comes back to New York for a couple of months unannounced, and is sort of watching Billy from across his school from a, the coffee shop across the street and everything, and it's actually a little creepy. But then you you it elicits your sympathies because you're like, wow, like she kind of she wants to come back. She wants to sort of reemerge into Billy's life, but she knows in a sense that it's unfair and that it could be damaging and all that kind of stuff. So you actually sympathetic to her. But when she comes back, they have sort of a rendezvous, her and Ted, she gets in contact with Ted at the office. They meet at uh, you know, a cafe, a restaurant of some sort. And this whole scene with Dustin Hoffman, sort of getting up in a huff and smacking the wine glass against the brick wall in the background, which was completely—it was planned on his part—and he told the cameraman apparently, so they could, so he would have it blocked in the shot, so he wouldn't miss it. But it was totally unknown to Meryl Streep when he did that. And again, being this difficult actor, and I, I want to talk about more about Meryl Streep, the baggage that she brought into the movie too. But talking about his method acting and wanting to surprise the other actor and everything but handed also to Meryl Streep for sitting there in the take and letting them film it and reacting and not, and you know what I mean? Like that's a, that's the consummate professional. And that's the, not only talent, but the instincts of an actor like that. Can you imagine sitting there while glass shatters into your hair and sitting there so they could get the take before I'm I'm sure freaking out and going to your trailer and causing like world war three, which I totally would. But in order for them to get that on film, Before reacting is amazing. And you know, she, Dustin Hoffman wanted her for what could be construed as pretty insidious reasons. Meryl Streep was with an actor, a famous actor, John Cazal, who was famous for his turn in The Godfather. He was also in The Deer Hunter, I believe, and he's in Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino. An amazing actor. Some say one of the best actors who ever lived, although he died so young and did very few things, he would have been like one of the greats. You know, think about De Niro, think about, you know, guys like Hoffman, think about guys like DiCaprio, all the great actors, he would have been in those throngs. But he died tragically very young, and that was Meryl Streep's beau. They were, were, I don't believe they were married, but I believe they were dating at the time. And when he passed, you know, she was really grief-stricken, obviously. And Dustin Hoffman knew this, and was one of the reasons why he wanted her for the role, because she could bring that, sort of that mental state into the role. And I think she does. You know, she's very teary-eyed with the bags under the eyes and the bloodshot eyes and the tears. And she just has that. There's something real behind her performance. And I just I think it's one of the great performances. It's almost a shame that she's not on screen longer, that she doesn't have more screen
0: time. Yeah, you kind of wish in a way that you just got to know a little bit more about what she was doing. And I don't know if that's in the book or not. We get to learn, like you said, we know in the early 70s, she worked at Mademoiselle and all of that. And then we learn that she spent time in California. We also learn that she's been seeing various men and all of that. And during the kind of heated courtroom battle later in the film, I wonder, though, if you think that she is the bad guy, like is it just because they show a lot of restraint by not giving us any of her perspective? Because the movie almost goes out of its way to not give us her perspective. Absolutely. We only see her perspective in the beginning. We don't see we don't get another ounce of it. And like I said, she basically capitulates at the end. So do you think she's the I, I, I don't know, bad guy antagonist villain? It's not really the right terminology, but. I'm certainly glad that the movie went the way it did, and I just don't sympathize with her very much. And I don't know if that's because of the nature of her character or because, again, the movie just doesn't show us anything about her experience, her healing and her the almost vision quest that she goes on, that she kind of explains in (laughs) California. And she goes out there and heals and she comes back to New York to try to win her son back through her through legal means. So what do you think about that? Do you think she is the bad guy or do you think that it's a little more nuanced than that?
1: You know, I know famously, as you said in the book, she's supposedly really vilified in the book. The character of Joanna is really vilified in the book. I don't think the movie, it turns out it's, it's hard because I want to go back to that first time of, of seeing the movie and taking it in fresh rather than seeing it a multiple, you know, multiple times. But I don't think the movie goes out of her, out of its way to present her, as not the villain. I don't think it tries to present her in anything in in a good light. I don't think it tries to shed any positive light on the character. It's only very late in the film, in the courtroom scene where we find out that Ted was basically, I don't want to say blackmailing, but he was very, he was really trying to press the issue uh, apparently of her being the stay-at-home mom and him having the career. Again, we talk about those gender roles, especially if you think about harkening back decades ago all the way back to the 70s gender roles were different and expectations with many spouses were different not that there were weren't anomalies there were and this is where this is where things also started to change around this time in real life in the late 70s into the early 80s i would say but you know my best friend's mom tommy was a a really successful biologist and for a for a pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company now his dad was an accountant they were both very successful but i'm willing to bet his mom, Chris, made more money. So the I. it's certainly not rare of this era, but it was things were changing. And I think that it's kind of a shame that we find out only so late in the story that it was through Ted's apparent convincing for her to be something that she wasn't, which is a very typical thing. I mean, I remember it's so funny when we talk about our parents' divorce, Kyle, because our parents' divorce came about twelve years later, and it's very prescient in a way because it's very it it it's very similar to what happened in this movie now our dad wasn't on Madison Avenue our dad was a firefighter, but the expectation was always for my mom to our mom to stay home and be you know raise the kids and take care of the house and everything like that now our mom did Roll into a career. She first thought about a career in sign language, American Sign Language, and she went to school for that. But she ended up embracing a career as a flight attendant. And while my parents were married, and they were cool, you know, they had the whole Firefly license plate, license plates on their respective cars and everything like that. But I do think that it was probably a tough hump. Again, we have to talk mom talk to mom and dad for specifics on this, but I believe it must have been a tough hump for them to get over when this whole dynamic of the household changed and was and was altered, and maybe it's a big part of what led into, you know, isolation, distance, and eventual divorce with them. I'm sure it 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 was it was part of the thing right for right or for wrong. You know, our our dad was also a workaholic. There were a lot of mitigating factors, but it definitely speaks to me of reality that this is a typical thing where maybe the Meryl Streep character, maybe Joanna, when they were young and just starting a family, had those thoughts in the back of her head. Like, no, I, I you know, I don't, I'm not ready to leave, a, you know, my career and have a creative outlet, which she says later in the courtroom and everything. I'm not ready to kind of set that part of myself aside. But she did, you know, she took it on good faith and gave it a good and gave it, you know, the old college try. But that could cause resentment. And that's something that our mom always told me, Kyle. I don't know if you know that or if she imparted that same wisdom to you. You're not married right now or anything like that. But she always said to me, honor yourself too in a relationship, not just in a marriage, but in a relationship because you have to be true to yourself. You have to bring, she was always very good with imparting that. You have to bring your whole, 100% whole of yourself into a relationship the other person hopefully too. So you bring those two separate holes, you form a new hole. You can't bring a fraction of yourself and a fraction of your significant other or spouse into a an, an equation, thrust the two together, and just hope that it works out because there's, there's a percentage missing then, which always made sense to me. And that's the tragic part of this story is that she just kind of let up. She went in for it probably not wholeheartedly believing that it was going to work but tr- trying to make an effort out of it and 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 it ends up it ends up in tragedy you know and that's what ends up happening when you're not true to yourself if she held her ground maybe they wouldn't have gotten married maybe it wouldn't have worked out with those two or maybe she would have had the best of both worlds and been a more sort of fulfilled human being and that's where you know, it would have been nice to learn about the Joanna character and learn those things about her earlier because then your your sympathies would have been split between the two characters instead of just being totally for the Dustin Hoffman character. So that's really where... And, you know, Meryl Streep carries that over really great. And I wonder... I know she had a problem with the, the Joanna in the book. I know she went to Robert Benton and said, like, how can we do... Who was the screenwriter and director? And said, you know, how can we make her a little more appealing? How can we make her a little more sympathetic? And how can we make her a little more human rather than being, you know, this, you know, this half a monster, which the character in the book was apparently. So that's, you know, for me, I just think that's, I don't know what the impetus was. Robert Benton seems like a really thoughtful director and a very thoughtful screenwriter. So I'm not sure why he wasn't paying more attention to that. And it could be just a, I know they cut like almost 50, 50 uh, minutes out of this film, so maybe there was. Oh, a wow. More, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't almost. That. I think 49 minutes were cut out. So maybe it was more of that. Or maybe it's just a case of Dustin Hoffman stealing the show,
0: too. It, yeah, it could be. It's interesting because I didn't I didn't read that. That's really I, I wonder if that footage is anywhere. I'd love to see that. But I also think that at, at 100, a brisk 106 minutes, the movie is perfectly paced. I don't think it needs. We don't really need any more. Definitely. It would be hard to believe that the movie can be almost three hours long. I think that that would be too much. But I do like that you brought up the idea of being yourself first. I've had this conversation with people in my own life, and it's often hard advice to take, but it's easy advice to give. And nonetheless, it is conventional and wise wisdom, which is that you have to be I don't necessarily want to use the verbiage. You have to be happy with yourself. I don't know that many of us or a lot of us aren't. Let's say a lot of us aren't happy with ourselves completely, but you kind of have to accept yourself, be comfortable with yourself and in your own skin and, and, and being alone and kind of the idea of what you do before you get involved in a partnership and that partnership should respect the boundaries of your own life. In my own experience in relationships, I take responsibility for the things that I've done wrong, but I also understand that some of the relationships that I've been in have not really respected who I am either and that I, I really require a lot of alone time I'm into a lot of hobbies that are basically just uh, solo kind of hobbies, whether it's playing games or reading or or listening to music or whatever. I don't I'm not one of these people that really needs to go out and socialize and do all that kind of stuff. So I understand that I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but it is really important wisdom to impart on others that you can't really find yourself in a happy relationship if at the very least you're not content and accepting of yourself. And this is, of course, what Joanna is missing And we understand that, again, from the court proceedings when we find out that she was an artist and she was, as you said, ripped away from and convinced, kind of cajoled away from her own career at a time when women were starting to kind of carpe diem in the workplace, which is what we see out of Peggy, of course, in Mad Men more than anyone as she climbs the ladder, you know, 10, 15 years before this movie even takes place. So it's a really interesting dichotomy between these two characters. They're both hurting, they're both struggling, and I would argue that they're both not entirely happy with themselves because Dustin Hoffman's character and Ted, I think, finds his own way and realizes that his own imbalance has led him to not know his son and not have a relationship with his son. I think it's really interesting. One of the it's kind of a throwaway line in the beginning, but I think it's meaningful is when he's flipping out and running around trying to cook breakfast and he burns his hand and he runs him off the school and all that. And he asks him his own son what grade he's in <laughs> as he's as he's sending him away. So it's like a really it's like almost like a Willy Wonka scene where it's you don't even realize that it's funny. It's really not supposed to be funny, I don't think. But when he's he's trying to hail one of the aides or whatever, and he's like, what grade are you in? You know, and he's like first and then the woman kind of speeds him away. So you see that he he's so detached from his family. He doesn't even know what grade his son's in. It's a pretty big thing. I know a lot of people are detached from their kids because they work a lot or whatever. but I think you would at least know what grade your son is in and and all of that. So it's a complicated thing. But you also are seeing him basically in the moment, just the night before his wife had left him. And he's also preparing a huge presentation for this big account that they're going to get at the firm. And it's a really intense beginning until they settle in. But I did love that kind of throwaway line. And since we're talking about Billy, the character of Billy, played by Justin Henry, again, nominated for a Golden Globe and an Academy Award for this role as well. I got to say, a lot of kid actors are terrible. I don't think it's really their fault. I don't think that a lot of kids are made for it for acting. I don't think that they really fully understand it. I know it's kind of a cop out answer, but Jake Lloyd comes to mind for me with this with Phantom Menace and not because of his performance in the movie, which I don't think is horrible. It's not good, but it's not horrendous, but because there's so much behind the scenes footage from that movie being filmed that was filmed like hours and hours and you just see that he's totally out of his element amongst these professional actors like Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor and George Lucas clearly has no idea what he's doing and also it's all green screened and all of that and I just feel like it's rare to find an actor we talked about Macaulay Culkin in the past who I think was a great child actor it's rare to find an actor like that that Does does any sort of acceptable role. And yet this role really demands this role of Billy demands a lot out of the actor, a lot of emotion, a lot of sadness. The kids crying on cue and acting distraught and and sad and and angry and lonely. And he does a really wonderful job. And you can almost roll your eyes at the nomination for best supporting actor for this role. He's the youngest person to ever be nominated for that Academy Award. But I also feel like it's kind of, i I don't know the competition in nineteen seventy nine really, the major movie that Kramer versus. Kramer was competing with was another movie that we love, Apocalypse Now. So they were kind of going back and forth with different awards and and the, the awards they won. but I feel like this kid really earned it, and there's some really intense scenes in this movie that he does a great job with, and i I, I wonder what his relationship was with Dustin Hoffman because it's usually them together, and that's got to be a pretty intimidating. Set up for a kid, although maybe he's so young and ignorant of Dustin Hoffman at this point that he doesn't even really know that he should be scared of working with such a great method actor. So what do you think about the performance of Justin Henry as Billy Kramer?
1: Oh, man, he's he's authentically good. It's one of those things where you're researching. I go back on YouTube. I'm watching all the old I'm trying to find in print on the on the Internet itself. And then on YouTube, like going back and looking at the old Siskel and Ebert review of the movie during its contemporary emergence in the theaters and all that kind of stuff. And just looking at everything and everybody, including Siskel and Ebert, every reviewer talking about how good this kid is. And I'm like, was he really that good? You know, and then going in and watching it, he's genuinely a good actor. He really carries off some really emotional stuff. Now I know Dustin Hoffman with his method, his sinister method acting sort of motifs and his skills bringing it in. I know he did things, where He would tell the actor, like, this is the last time we're gonna, you know, like, I think I don't know what scene they recorded last. I believe they shot this film in sequence, which I really admire. That's a really hard thing to do. That's a hard, that's a hard thing to do when I get 12 scenes to animate of a show. You know, I get one fifth of an ep, of a five minute episode. It's hard enough to animate something to you know, a, a minute in sequence, let alone a two hour movie in sequence, which is amazing. So, it must have been the last film that they seen they shot together. Dustin Hoffman told. Uh, Justin Henry, that this is the last scene we're gonna do together. We're never gonna see each other again. Like he really, like milked it for all it was worth. Like really upset the kid, <laughs> which is really kind of like it. It seems half insidious, but I guess if you're gonna make a movie, you might as well go through it, right? I, I don't know how I would feel if I was Justin Henry's parents with Dustin Hoffman pulling those tricks. But you know, he's got a big bag of method acting tricks. He got he had to pull them. But Justin Henry was so good. And you know what the other thing is? He looks. So authentically late 70s. Now, I know that didn't seem like a big thing at the time the movie came out. But looking now, in retrospect, decades later, this kid really looks like a 70s kid. Like, he's authentically the part of a 70s New York City kid. Amazing. Just amazing. I was really concerned in re-watching. I didn't remember this. I was like, wait, it's 79. It's the the movie shot in contemporary New York, 1979. Where? Why? This kid has a lot of toy cars and trucks and airplanes and stuff. Where the hell are all the Star Wars Star Wars toys Yeah, for like the yeah, first 40 funny. minutes? And then uh, ju- it was like almost upon thinking it, they magically appeared in the background. But, which, by the way, he, I think there was like an X-Wing and a, a Darth Vader's TIE fighter back there. But the X-Wing was shot. Like all the proton torpedoes were ripped off. I, I don't know if it was missing the cockpit. Uh, maybe I stole it from, <laughs> from Justin. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You'll let it, you'll let Justin know.
1: That was the other thing. I was like, where are the Star Wars? Oh, OK, there they are. Now it makes sense because you can't you can't make a 1979 film with a seven year old without Star Wars toys in the room. That's impossible. You can't do it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. This movie does a really nice job, though, of not really putting any product in except for there. It seems like the tab, the drink tab is in the film. Yes, you can kind of notice. Definitely. Which is funny, which is such an obscure <laughs> drink that Sticks around for some reason. I don't think I've ever even had it, to be honest, but so he does a great job. I agree. And it's interesting to watch his evolution. Now, I want to talk about some of these. Actually, you know what? Before we talk about some of the scenes, we should bring in the fourth character of note here, which we brought up several times now, Margaret, the neighbor. Of course, excuse me, played by Jane Alexander. And she was also nominated for a Golden Globe and a Best Supporting Actress for this role. And she's very well known. You'd know her face if you've not seen this film for some reason, TV, film, even stage. I think she's won some Tonys for her stage work. She's a great character because she's divided between these two people in Joanna and Ted. And she's divorced herself. And you can see that Joanna kind of takes some inspiration from her. And it's later kind of admitted in the courtroom scene that Jane or I'm sorry, Margaret might have said things to her that insinuated that she should have done what she did. But what complicates that is that she also has a closeness that's developed later on with Ted. And what I love about this red herring in this movie is that you kind of expect they're going to get together and even watching it, I've seen this movie probably ten times now. You kind of almost want to see like the butterfly effect of like, are they going to get together because they're so comfortable with each other? They're so they almost have a rapport with them with each other that would suggests that why aren't you, why aren't you together and yet the movie never bites there or at least we never see that happen maybe it happens later after the you know after this timeline is over but i love this role a lot it adds femininity to the movie that i think is desperately needed when streep is gone otherwise it's really just a boys club not only with the main actors but also at work and all the, you, there's almost no women in the film so it just brings a little bit of balance in that regard it makes it a little more believable in that sense and I think she does a really nice job of playing her role. She's kind of again, this is a really interesting thing to look at from socio political 1979 perspective of a woman raising two or three kids by herself. She left her husband and she's in the dating scene and she's doing the best she can and she's befriended her neighbor. And so there's a real dynamic relationship between Margaret and Margaret and Ted that I like. But what did you think, Dave, about Jane Alexander's performance in this film?
1: Yeah, I can see totally see. Jane Alexander getting the academy nod for this part. She's really good in it. I have this weird thing with her though. I have a weird confusion between Jane Alexander and Allison Janney, the actress Allison Janney who, you know, many of you guys would know from Juno and um, I think she's in American Beauty. I, and uh, the, the whole West time wing. I'm thinking she's in the West
0: Wing. That's probably her most famous role.
1: Right, she's in Right, that's right. That's exactly. Yeah, so most people would know her from that. And it's so, it's so funny. I'm looking at her and being like, wow, she just like the whole time I'm watching now, currently in rewatching. I'm like, wow, she just kind of thinking about how she aged and aging her back to them and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm not even thinking about the right person. I have this whole Patrick Swayze, Russell Crowe, uh, uh, Kurt Russell thing. I get re- did I ever tell you that I get Patrick Swayze and Kurt Russell like really mixed Interesting. up. So
0: I Interesting. have this whole
1: thing with them. But she's great in the movie, and it really is one of the most striking emotional turns in the movie is the friendship that blossoms between Ted and Margaret is really telling because this is the wife's best friend, and she's perceived as the foil and maybe the catalyst for part of the reason why Joanna left in the first place. Ted takes exception to that, and to see an actual really heartfelt friendship blossom from that is really cool. And he goes, you know, that scene where he goes to her in the kitchen and it's a, it's a, it's another one of those really gravitational Dustin Hoffman performances where she's washing dishes in his kitchen and he goes to her It's right after Billy gets hurt. And he goes there and says, look, if anything ever happens, I'm wondering if you could take care of him. Like, can you take my son? But he's also interspersing jokes in there too. He's like, you're a terrible dishwasher, but I know you be you're a great mom, like type of thing. It's so charming. And it's such a great emotional scene. There's so much great emotional impact in seeing a, a friendship blossom there, where they were kind of they were kind of enemies. Like I'm sure they were friends at one point, but once Joanna left, that whole frenemy thing becomes very real because you're like, all right, this is the maybe the the woman who talked her into it, and you know, uh, Joanna, the Margaret character was the shoulder to cry to cry on for Joanna to cry on. So it's the one who knew everything I'm sure she was the one that she turned to that Joanna turned to in times of need so for Ted to initially think like hey you're the one like that did this you guys got you got a divorce from your husband and you sort of you know you're sort of playing it up and celebrating it and trying to like duplicate that with my wife and trying to you know encourage her to go in that direction as well and for them to be such good friends I love it I love seeing them together and it does it seems like a little weird like he's patting her on the ass and stuff like that. And, you know, they're kissing and hugging and everything. But it's funny. It's really a friendship because most of the conversations are based on other relationships like dating. She's talking about dating her French teacher and then she's talking about possibly getting back with her ex husband and all that kind of stuff. So most it's a it's just a really it's just a really palpable friendship on screen between a man and a woman, which I think is really I thought that was really a a, a nice way to uh, something nice to imbue and sort of weave into the story. I thought it was really cool.
0: Yeah, she, I think, is an interesting linchpin. Do you let me fast forward, I guess, to the end of the movie just to ask this question about her. Do you think that they remain friends? I mean, do you in, in your mind, do you see it that way?
1: Yeah, definitely. The thing I wonder is if is she going to get together with back together with her ex-husband, the Margaret mm. character? That's the thing, because she's she's kind of says she's she's interested he sort of initiated it, apparently. We never see him. We never see this guy on screen. We see her and her kids, but that she's got cold feet. You know, she's kind of excited about it, but also nervous. So I'm wondering, as they're walking, I think that, what is it, that scene at the end where they're walking in the snow and he helps her with her groceries or whatever, or Whatever, and they're having that conversation? That, I, I wonder, is like, and also, how will that dynamic change her friendship with, with Ted? It's weird because it's a platonic friendship. But will her getting back together with her husband sort of affect or have any sort of um, effect on on that friendship, even though it is platonic? I don't know. It's an interesting it's an interesting one. But I, I love that. I love those two together. I think it's really cool. And you do think it's going to maybe blossom into something. And Billy even asks, he asks, like, hey, are you guys going to get together? And he's like, no, we're just really good friends.
0: Yeah, it's it's charming. And women, men and women can be platonic friends. I believe that and I've been in that situation Uh, with several women. So I've also been in platonic situations that turn not platonic. So those things do happen. So that's why I wanted to ask about that. But also, I'm curious, fast forwarding to the end, and and then we'll go into some specific scenes that I want to talk about. But do you think Meryl Streep capitulates at the end? As we know, Joanna kind of gives up. How do you think it goes from there? Do you think that she basically gets Ted's deal? In other words, she gets Billy for two weekends and dinner or whatever once a week you think that that's how it goes? Yeah, you don't really know it. the movie. The movie kind of ends pretty suddenly. I'm not crazy about the end of the movie. I'm cr- I like the w- I like how it ends in terms of the subject matter, but I'm not crazy about the suddenness of it. I feel like they could have massaged that a little bit more, but it, it does leave it up to your imagination. You don't really know how this is all going to go. I suppose it's possible that they even get back together. Right. So I, I was mean, gonna ask you. I think you. I think yeah, I think you could read into the ending that maybe because she's talking a lot about how he's home and. I wanted to take him home and he is already home and stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, is she it, it could be interpreted in some way that maybe she she realizes the error of her ways. And maybe Ted takes her back. But how do you think what do you think happens after the, the cameras are assuming this was real? What do you think happens after the cameras? Are yeah, off?
1: it's a great question. I love pondering this, too. And I love the way the movie subverts our expectations. You know, Ted loses in the courtroom, but she he eventually wins by his ex-wife's hand. And it's really cool. And it's right at the end. It's a great way to end the movie. I couldn't think of a better way to end it. And it's a little open-ended, as we're talking about. But yeah, I think I could see it being flipped, where now Joanna has what init- initially was going to be the court-ordered way it was going to go for Ted. They just flip the script. She gets him on, uh, you know, he she gets him, whatever it is, like, what is that, ostensibly an 80-20 or 70-30 sort of relationship? So where he lives at home with the dad and the, the mom has visitation, right? So you flip it around. But wouldn't it be great? Why couldn't they get back together? Everything that she had a problem with has genuinely changed. Everything, every problem that she had with Ted as far as not being attentive, not being around for the family, being very one-dimensional and having you know this singular focus on just his career- Everything's altered. He, he learned how to become a dad. He learned how to become emotionally available. We'll talk about those scenes that are echoed in the movie where you could see that evolution. And so everything he's learned, he's come full circle. He's everything now. He's an ad exec and he's successful, but he also knows how to be a dad. And you would, you, would sit, you would see, especially through his relationship with Margaret and his warmth and just sort of his availability, that he would also be – you could ascertain that he would also be a good husband now. So, why not? Why not get back together? What would be stopping them? You know, and also, how would it go if that was the case? Let's say they got back together. I would imagine Ted could embrace his wife being a career woman. What do you think about that? Do you think if they got back together and Joanna would go in for her career finally and have this multi dimensional wife of being a mom and being a, uh, a wife, but also being a career woman and also having her success and her creative outlet, as she says, and all that. Do you think that Ted would truly embrace that?
0: Yeah, I think that he probably would, because it does seem like he's seen the error of his ways. And also the situation, the situation between him and Billy wouldn't really materially change if she came back because he would still need to be cared for at some point when he's at work. And At school or whatever. So it's not like he needs to they need to find like some sort of other avenue. Now she can just kind of come back in and pursue her career if she wanted or do whatever it is she wanted to do. So, yeah, I think that's totally possible. And I I do wonder what the insinuation is supposed to be at the end of the film if there is one about what ends up happening between them. But I do think it's it's entirely possible that. That she comes back into their lives and, and does realize those things, and hopefully Ted would be wise enough to know that nothing has change there either because we do learn that he was making $33,000 a year. He gets bumped down to like 28, two or something like that. But in 1979, that's so that's well off even in New York City. So it's not like they're rich. They are clearly renting an apartment, but it's $29,000 in 1979 is nothing to sneeze at. And so her just being able to add on to that just makes them wealthier and able to kind of care for their kid if they need a nanny or something like that. So just Hypothetically speaking, I think it would be possible. But some of these scenes I wanted to talk about, a few people wrote in about them. So let's integrate some of the audience here All right into our show. And I want to go with Dr. Itchy PP, very <laughs> subtle name. He says, hey, fellas, I saw this movie about 10 years ago, and the scene that sticks out most to me is how touching it was when he was making breakfast for his son towards the climax of the movie. It was such a clever way of showing how good of a father he had become compared to the beginning of the film. Um, So I did want to talk about, again, some of these Gemini-like echoes in the movie that I think are so well filmed and show the evolution so overtly without having to have too much exposition. In fact, this movie doesn't have a lot of exposition compared to a lot of just observation. So when the, the morning after Joanna leaves Ted, he's freaking out. He can't cook the breakfast. He's trying to cook the French toast. He doesn't know what what he's doing. He's burning himself. He doesn't know how to make coffee in the French press. And it's a total disaster. And then later on, there's this really rhythmic scene with him and with with Ted and Billy when they're making French toast again. And they've got it down. And it's awesome. I also love the scene. One of my favorite scenes similarly is we see and this is another shot that they keep using this down the hall shot of that with the master bedroom on the left, I think. And then Billy's bedroom is also on the left. The bathroom is on the right. And they show that Billy gets up because like the dumpster outside his window is being emptied <laughs> at certain mornings, yeah. which I think is so it's such a city thing. And obviously something I'm so used to that. And you are too, having lived in cities where things just happen at a certain time and it just gets you up from bed and he goes into the bathroom and then he typically goes and wakes up his mom or whatever, and they make breakfast. So you see those rhythms as he develops them with his dad. And to the point where they show in the movie him getting up, going in the pee and then waking his dad up. His dad then comes out. Billy gets the breakfast together. They're eating Entenmann's donuts. The best. (laughs) I love that scene. (laughs) And then he he puts the plates out. They don't say a word to each other. Uh, Dustin Hoffman pours the milk and the orange juice. He's reading the paper. Billy's reading his comic books. It's like an awesome scene Ah. and shows how far they've come. So talk to me a little bit about what some of your, you know, how you feel about the kitchen scenes and the cooking scene. Obviously, that cooking scene is iconic in this movie but also about kind of the echoing that I'm talking about between some of the scenes about how they show you the same thing over and over again and how that evolves. Again, you see it at work where he, when he's promoted, he knows he needs to go home the night that he's, that his wife is going to leave him. He doesn't know that. And yet he insists on finishing his story. Then later on in the movie, the same boss is trying to hold on to him to go to a party and he needs to go and pick up his son. So it's just always two sides of the same coin, which I find so fascinating with this film. So talk to me a little bit about you can pick it up wherever you want, but about any of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a clever way on film visually to show evolution of a character and how they once handled things and how far they've come and how they now are able to handle the same the same exact task. And I have two favorite echo scenes. The kitchen one is, the French toast scene is great because the first one is a fiasco. He's just in the throes of being left by his wife. It's a, It's a fresh wound. He's whipping up a frenzy in the kitchen, trying to cook his son some French toast. You could tell he doesn't really know how to do it. His son knows a lot more about it than he does. He burns his hand. He and it becomes this freak out where he's screaming and yelling and saying "God damn her!" and kicking the stove. And it's it's just really it's a <laughs> it's just really a tragedy from A to Z. And then the the end one it's placed so perfectly because it's right it's their last breakfast before. Everything's going to shift for the family where, you know, Joanna is going to take custody that morning. They have a conversation right before the the day before in the park about how it's going to be. And Billy's really worried. And it's really touching because he's also thinking about his dad and having sympathy for his dad, where he says, you know, if you're lonely, if you're ever lonely, you could call me. And in the kitchen the next morning, they're cooking the French toast and everything's buttoned up and perfect. You know, Dustin Hoffman's got the pan, he's buttering it. He's got the pot holder this time. He's not going to burn his hand. It's you know Billy's learned how to whisk the eggs. He knows how to do it now. Dustin Hoffman adds the milk in where Billy had to coach him to do that before. There's no broken eggshells. Everything is everything is the way it should be. They they learned how to do this now. They're a family now. And that makes it a little more tragic cuz you know it's about to break up. Just like look how far they've come. Look how much they've learned. You know, they've developed this teamwork, this bond and now it's going to be all broken up. And the other really striking thing about the second echoed French toast scene for me where Billy's sitting on the counter and he's looking at his dad and he gives him the smile and you know he's sad not just for himself. And that's really touching. Yeah, that's really striking for a 7-year-old to feel that way. You know he's he's sad because of the whole situation but he's also sad because he knows his dad's going to be alone which he states the night before the evening before in the park. So that's really a touching thing for me. And you know kids aren't kids aren't idiots you know what I mean they feel that way too that you could see that being a very realistic turn and something a little nuance a little nuance of realism to insert in the film there where the kid feels bad for himself yes but he also feels for everybody that he loves and having that little bit in there was really telling the other echo scene you brought up earlier Kyle that I also love is the school drop-off scene we see that frenetic drop-off where Ted's drop, sh- trying to shoo off Billy as quick as he can at the entrance to his elementary school. He's trying to hail a cab. He's late for his meeting. He's late for his presentation. He kind of pawns his kid off on some unknown teacher. Again, doesn't know what grade the kid's in. You know, You just see like, okay, this dad has been hung up on his career for a long time. That's apparently all that matters. The second school drop-off scene is really, it's interesting because it's subtle. And he's bringing Billy to school. They're having a conversation down the block. You're not even sure Billy has his backpack on, but you're not even sure, sure when they cut to the scene where they're going at first. They arrive at the school entrance, and Billy's in the in the middle of telling a story. And they stop. He has to go in. And Dustin Hoffman, the Ted character, asks Billy to keep going. He's like, "Oh, you know, so what else happened?" And the kid actually has to say, "Dad, I got to get into school." So now you have the the exact opposite. Now he's being that attentive, loving father who really enjoys. He's really embracing you know, hearing a story from his seven-year-old. He wants to hear more. So it's the exact opposite of what happened before. I love that. And I don't know. I can't think of that many movies that do it. I think you have to be really careful with it because it could get monotonous. But the way they pull it off, Robert Benton and the actors and every, the, the, the crew, the way they all pull it off is really, really clever. And I, I, you know, I think it's just such a such a clever technique in the movie. And it's just really it's great cinematic storytelling. It's like it harkens back to reading a great work of literature. It's just something really, really smart to put in
0: there. Since we are a retro and nostalgia podcast and you and I both like this sort of thing, I do want to point out that one of the scenes I like, which isn't an echo, it's just in a one off scene is the scene in the supermarket where Billy is kind of showing him where all of the things he needs to buy that his mom usually buys and he's trying to buy this detergent, but he, you know, her mom buys or his mom buys that detergent and so on and so forth. It was just cool to see all the old products and the prices for those products and kind of an old bodega style supermarket and people had a, you know, this was before you could scan your items, obviously, and all of that, which really came out in the 80s. So I just wanted to throw that out there that I loved seeing the tide and the the joy and Palmolive and all that kind of stuff, all those brands in addition to tab and Entenmann's, which you already brought up. And it's <laughs> great. It's awesome how the Entenmann's products look the same, not the the boxes look the same, but also like the donuts look exactly the same. Like everything's just the same. With the yeah, Entenmann's. it's the same. I just absolutely love very authentically New York touch, which I'm, I'm stoked about. So I wanted to ask something else about this movie, which is the subject matter kind of in an overarching way. Neo JD wrote into us about this and says, uh, I never heard of this movie until you posted this thread, and now that I've watched it, I can see why it's won awards. It's a masterpiece. I was genuinely surprised to read in the trivia that some parts were improvised or written by the cast because the writing was so tight. How hard is it to watch this movie for you guys based on your own parents' divorce? My parents weren't the happiest together, but they never split, and that's something I haven't thought of for a long time. I can't relate to this movie on that big of a level, but there's definitely moments that had me tearing up. So as kids of divorce, we both are, I'm curious to... Dave- What did you make of the movie in regards to that? Does it touch you because of that? It's impossible not to think about our situation,
1: you know, our Moriarty, very specific Moriarty situation when watching this movie. It's just, there's so many echoes. There's so many sort of inadvertent nods to everything that happened in our film, whether it was our parents' careers, our mom's fledgling career, which she sort of embraced when I was probably, I mean, mom probably started becoming a flight attendant or started her career as a flight attendant when I was 15 so only or maybe 14 so only two or three years before our you know our parents split up I wish I had seen the movie before that it was obviously out way before my parents got divorced but I wonder if they saw it mom and dad aren't huge movie buffs they mostly seem to watch the movies we want to watch as kids whether it was bringing us to Empire Strikes Back or the drive-in to watch E.T. or later on all the 80s films back to the future Goonies for me, Aunt Joni was another touchstone for me with watching current movies growing up in the '80s. What, you know, Ghostbusters and Karate Kid and some of the Back to the Future films. She she took me to a lot of movies too. For myself and Grandpa too, took me a lot to a lot of movies. So I'm wondering, they were never really like movie or TV buffs. Mom, outside of she enjoyed game shows, and we talked about she was really into Days of Our Lives. The epic soap opera that we found is still being aired today. And dad was never a big movie. You know, he enjoyed movies, but he never, it didn't seem like he went out of his way to watch them. He was so busy. So I wonder if they saw it. That's where, that's where, where this movie left me the last, very last time I watched it last night was like, wow, I wonder if mom and dad saw this movie again, preempting their divorce by about 11 or 12 years. So, you know, and I know a lot of this is very typical. You know, a lot of this is the typical is the human condition, especially in the U.S., the divorce rates. We know how crazy it is that the divorce rate had really kicked into high gear in the 70s. So I think it's dropped off in recent years a little bit, but it was bad. I mean, the divorce divorce rate in this country for years, for decades, was 40 to 50 percent of marriages. That's half. You know, that's a lot. And, I, you know, it's very common parent, you know, people split up. And I think- what happens in this movie is a very common thing. I mean, adultery is a very common thing. That's not part of this film. But I think careers and sort of gender roles and caregiving with families and expectations with one career versus another career or multiple careers, I think that's a really... That impedes a lot of marriages, so I know it's very typical. And that's certainly... I think that was certainly part of our parents' story, for sure. And what do you think? What do you think about the whole thing. Do you think it, when you look at it, Kyle, especially for you now, Billy was five and a half in the movie when his mom left. And we, it goes all the way for another year and a half until we see Billy at the close of the movie. He's seven. So it speaks very specifically to what happened, how it happened for you. You were around the same age when mom and dad split up. So what about for you? Tell me how, you know, and again, introduced to this film by Miss Parry, who was a really legendary figure in your life and my and, and my life, one of our favorite teachers. We talk about that in our teachers episode. So what about it? What Tell me about how it how this movie speaks to you, specifics, how it leaves you feel, how it resonates and all of that.
0: Yeah, I think when I first saw it in 2000, 2001, whatever it was, I don't think I was even intelli- like emotionally intelligent enough to make the connection that this movie was speaking to me for some subconscious reason that has to do with my own experiences. But I know that now. And yeah, I I agree with exactly what you said, which is that it's impossible to kind of sever this movie from our own experience, not only because of what happens at a broad in a broad way in the sequence of events, but just because again, of Billy's age, just, it does speak to me like that. I don't think, frankly, I didn't have a relationship with, or I don't remember having a relationship with dad. Like Billy ends up developing with his dad Dad didn't really have the the um the time to have that kind of relationship. He was gone for days at a time and all of that. I don't blame him for any of that. It was dropped on him, the situation. So it's to your point, I think it's just kind of impossible to to separate those two things. So it's definitely on my mind and I really like the movie apart from that, but I can't help but wonder if that's just why I'm attracted to it. So much is because it's some sort of catharsis for my own experience and we all, we talk about nostalgia a lot but catharsis is is important too uh when you enjoy things or when you need to watch or see things in order to kind of get through your own sadness or your own feelings so yeah i think that they're intrinsically linked to each other for yeah, me well said christian gray wrote into us on patreon and says hey and i had never heard of this movie until i saw it was going to be this week's knockback topic so i went and watched it thanks for bringing an amazing movie to my attention I found myself tearing up in a few heart-wrenching moments, especially when Dustin Hoffman's character hugs his son after telling him that he will have to do all the things that they do together with mom now, which scene affected each of you most emotionally. That is an incredibly sad scene. You know, though, we haven't really talked about it, and I do want to give a little bit of shine to the courtroom scenes. I think those those scenes are really sad, too, because you see on the faces of both protagonists in Joanna and in Ted that this has gone too far, that. The means that are necessary that the lawyers are are using and and leveraging in the courtroom in order to kind of defame the other person to get what they want. I mean, that's the way it goes. But they realize that this is cutting too deep, is going too far, is revealing each other to be people that they themselves know the other person isn't, that they're trying to kind of take things out of context, find ways to manipulate the situation. And it softens both of them. But what's interesting is that it doesn't happen immediately because there's that scene where Ted is going to the elevator in the courtroom, and Joanna's is kind of chasing after him, and he's ignoring her, and he just leaves as she's apologizing. And it's specifically because they're blaming him in the courtroom for Billy's injury, which is not really his fault. If it's any, I don't think it's anyone's fault, but if it, if it if, but if it uh, if you want to blame anyone for it, you would definitely blame Margaret, I think, more than Ted for the injury that befalls Billy. So I did want to give a shout out to that because I think that there's a real there's heart wrenching scenes there too where they're looking at each other, ones on the stand, ones behind. The defendant or plaintiff's table. Ted is kind of nodding no to her as they're asking pretty tough questions for her to answer about her own role in their divorce and her own role in their unhappiness. So that kind of resonates with me. And I do dig those scenes because I think there's a lot of depth there. What about you? What scene scenes are most emotional for you?
1: You know what scene really struck me the first time I saw this movie? And you know, I might've tuned into it right when it happened. As you said, Billy falls off the, in the parks, I guess, I guess there's somewhere in central park falls off the monkey bars, hurts himself. You don't know the extent of the injury right away. And there's that tracking shot of Dustin Hoffman scooping his son into his arms. And I'm going to get emotional talking about it, <laughs> running with his son down the street in his arms. And that to as a de- that the first time i saw it i wasn't even a parent yet and i didn't have any children yet and i still it was like whoa like that is the mo- that is the most profound demonstration of being a parent i've ever seen in fiction like that was just it struck me and i think because i had those type those type of parents certainly now seeing it i double down on that now as a parent because there is no better scene or no better demonstration of love for a kid or worrying or care of just wanting to get that kid where he's got to go when he's, you know, not knowing the extent of the injury and just that, that sort of panic that, that comes out of the love that you have for this person. They're more important than you are. And just him running that Dustin Hoffman running down the street with his son in his arms, panicking, trying to find the emergency room was just such a striking scene for me. I get really emotional with that scene especially now as a dad. And the other, another sort of subtle echo scene earlier in the film, there's a couple of times where the son, you know, Joanna leaves and Billy gets upset and, you know, maybe they're having dinner or they're, they're doing something around the apartment and Dustin Hoffman sort of scoops the kid up into his arms and says, it's going to be all right. And you could tell that he's also trying to tell himself that he's also trying to convince himself of that. And there's that, Penultimate scene in the film, or maybe two, maybe three scenes before the the film ends, where Billy and Ted are walking in the park, and I guess Ted's sort of briefing his kid, talking in a language that he would understand about what happened in the courtroom and how it works with the mom now having custody. And we talked to this really wise man; he was the judge, and we talked to him for a couple of days, and he figured out that it's best if you're mostly with mom and you'll come visit me. And he's trying to make his son understand and. Billy's getting upset and he says, we're going to be all right. And the way he says it, just a little inflection or the way he says it is just a little different. And you could tell now that he believes it too. Very emotional scene for me because he, the way he says it and the way he smiles and the way he sort of touches his son's arm or whatever while he's saying it is just so, you could tell, you could see how far he's come, that he's accepted the situation that not only has he changed and evolved and become a better parent and all that kind of stuff, but he's also... Embracing the change, and he's going to give it his best shot. And as viewers who were very concerned the whole time and very empathetic, we know now that it's going to be okay too. It's just very, it's a very little emotional bit that they put in there. It was like, wow, he believes it now too. Because initially, when he's saying it just to comfort his son, you know, he's not even sure that's going to be the case. And just for the family to come full circle is amazing. And you know what, the other scene we talked a little bit about about the courtroom stuff, which is amazing. There's one scene in there, Kyle, which to me is like the ultimate scene of a relationship or especially of a marriage. And that's that you have these two people at odds in Ted and Joanna. They're in a courtroom, but, you know, basically struggling for the, for the hearts and minds of their kid, basically. I mean, basically they're, they're battling for their kid. And what more insane way is there for two people to butt heads in a courtroom? I mean, these two—these are two people at odds. And there's the conflict and the disagreement, and there's barriers there, and there's reasons why they can't move forward together. There's impediments. But there's that one scene, and you realize there's still an element of respect, of kindness, of caring, and of love. And that's when the one prosecutor is saying to Joanna, he's saying, well, wouldn't youn't wouldn't you agree that you messed up the most important relationship in your life? and she he's whispering, Ted from the stand from you know from his seat, she's up on the stand is whispering to her no, like you didn't mess up you didn't mess up and she's whispering back, yes." And it's just that profound thing' it's like there's still these people are at the ultimate odds battling for the custody of their son, but there's still that element of love there and understanding there. And that's like one of those things. It's like, wow, if you really feel that way, why don't you just get back together again? Everything's, it's solved. You know, you guys got really lucky the way it played out. You know, it's just seeing that in a marriage. It's hard for me to imagine. I've been very lucky that I'm not divorced or on the verge of divorce or anything. I have a very, (laughs) I have a very understanding wife and all that kind of stuff. And we have a, we have a strong relationship and I'm very fortunate for that. And one of the most painful things I could think of as being in a relationship where we were not friends anymore. You know, like for instance, if we got divorced and all that history, you know, and all that love and all that time spent getting to know each other and all of those little things that you know about each other that likely no one else will ever know. All that intimacy, you know, is just kind of wiped away. And it was interesting in the movie to see that it really wasn't, you know, they still had a modicum of that. And that leads me to believe that these two people, you know, maybe I'm just like an optimist and I, you know, divorce is something that really, really bothers me. It was, we were affected by it in our family. And, you know, to me, it's just like that, that optimism of like, I see that, you know, that ember of hope there, build on it. You know what I mean? It's like the piece of sand in the clam, make the pearl out of it. You got that little piece of sand, now make it, make it into something special you know, you still have that as long as you still have that little bit of that sliver of understanding, that sliver of caring about each other, that he, even though he was being put through this and he might lose his son, he still wanted her to know that you didn't mess up. You know, that sort of kindness, again, and that might speak to, again, that appeal of that Dustin Hoffman character of like, he really did love his wife. He was just lost. You know, people get lost in things. People get lost in a career. They get they get hung up on the wrong things. They get hung on material materialism, material things. I, I'm certainly a victim of that. So, you know, for me, it was like th- those little scenes, those little, those little humanizing moments where we see the characters and we see that they still care for each other, even through all of this, even through all of this fighting, even through all this battling, the worst type, you know, a custody battle for a kid. Seeing that still was really demonstrative and, and one of the reasons why I think this movie is so
0: special. Very, very well said. Is there anything else that we hadn't brought up that you wanted to talk about before we close this conversation mm. about Kramer versus Kramer? Out? I was just
1: taking a little sip of my decaffeinated iced coffee. The headache's yeah, gone. Please do. The headache's gone. I don't know what it is. I Good. think I'm it glad just knockback. Knockback is like Advil for, Good. My, for, my, for the downtrodden. Not just for me. For
0: all you guys. I'm very guys. glad to hear that.
1: Now, Kyle, I want to give a shout out. I have to give a quick shout to... Joe Beth Williams. Now I know Joe Beth Williams from Poltergeist. Uh, you know, I have an obsession with Poltergeist. We talked about that in our movies. We watched too young episode, but I think I have a little crush on 19 eras, 19 eras, 1970s era, Joe Beth Williams. She's pretty, she's pretty cute. And I'm not just saying that cause she's naked. Maybe it's the girl with the glasses thing. I like a girl with glasses, but I love that mm. scene. And it's one of the, one of the, there's a couple of moments of levity in, in the film. Not too many. But where sort of Ted um, goes out to dinner or shacks up with the copywriter. I guess she's the copyri- head copywriter or the copy chief of his ad agency. And they have the whole exchange where she says, yeah, the answer is yes. And he's like, to what? And she's like, to go out to dinner with you. And then it just cuts to them in bed together naked. They're sleeping. And she gets up naked. She has to, she has to leave, but she's looking for the bathroom. And Billy walks in. So she Billy walks into a naked Phyllis. Her name's Phyllis Bernard. So I just want to give a shout out to that very quick turn for Joe Beth Williams. I, I think she's great. I, I think she's just really appealing. But I, again, I'm probably a little biased because only a few years later, she would star as the mom in Poltergeist. And I think she was in all the Poltergeist films, if I'm not mistaken. She's one of the, thankfully, she's one of the actors that wasn't that didn't die. That was associated with Walter Geist. <laughs> I know. A- <laughs> and that's, you know, that's another story for another time. And then I'll just give a, a quick shout out to George Coe. I didn't know him from anything else. He played, in the film, he played Ted's boss. I guess he was the president of the ad agency where Ted first worked. And I'm assuming he wasn't a partner because he's not in the name. He's I think the first agency was... Uh, Roth, Kane, and Donovan. And then the second agency was Norman, Craig, and Kummel. But I, he's he's really good. But the reason why I want to talk about him, he plays the character of Jim O'Connor, again, the ad agency president, or I guess Ted's direct boss, is that he is the most fucking unsympathetic boss I have ever seen in my life. like Definitely. Thank God I have not dealt... Now, these type of people exist. I know advertising. I, didn't, I haven't worked directly for an agency, but we worked in production capacity for agencies. And I've worked for animation production houses that were owned obsessively by a, big agencies, some of the biggest in New York. And they don't even say that they own it, the production houses, because it's like for them, it's nothing. It's peanuts. You know, running something for millions of years, nothing. But that is the ad world. I mean, that's the ad world now. So I could imagine it was the same in the 70s. And that's a heartless son of a bitch. And you know that the they those people have a different set of values. Like talk about the character of Jim O'Connor real quick. We see Colin talked about a little earlier. We talk about like having drinks and conversation after work, after work parties, going to the bar, whatever. He's trying to twist Ted's arm and staying longer, having another scotch, whatever it is. That's the world. That's that world. You know, advertising, first of all, is like 10 to 8. That's normal working hours. And it goes way beyond that. In work and then social life, you know, that's why they roll in at ten o'clock. Because there that's it's everything's skewed towards the nighttime, work-wise and social, you know, socializing wise. That's the life. And it's so crazy to see, it really speaks to me to see a family man or somebody with family responsibilities, even in a film like this, sort of have to struggle and wrestle with that other world because I've known, I've known it, I've seen it, but I've never had a boss pull me into it like that. And it really draws out my sympathies and it draws out a little bit of my anger. I don't like it. You know, I, I think you should be able to, listen, I'm a workaholic. I work long hours, but I do that of my own volition. I don't do that because anybody tells me to do it. So, and I know this is something that's taking place right now. There's a lot of controversy in the video game production world. And I just want to take this opportunity to say, I think people that aren't familiar with production should stop talking about it and stop writing about it, because you're not an expert at it. You know what I mean? And I don't mean to uh, draw a strange parallel here, but I see a lot of people writing and talking about production, whether it's video game or animation or whatever, and they're not intimate with the world. They're writing about it as an outsider. And I think you la- you know, the, a lot of those people lack a full understanding. They don't have a full encompassed understanding of what they're talking about. And I just want to say, like, a lot of the people that do What they do, it requires quality, and the type of people that do it want to. That's their passion. You know what I mean. But so that's one end of it. But I hate seeing somebody forced to do it, like Ted was, and uh, fired over it. Like that scene is shocking. You don't think it's going to go in that direction. You know that guy is actually taking you to dinner and dessert. You, You you had this whole hour and a half long conversation, probably. Only to be let go at the end of the conversation. It's such, such a cruel, there's such a cruelness and you know, some sort of embedded hostility or just a real lack of I wanna say, just a real lack of like empathy or sympathy or understanding. Even if you don't come even if your family obligations, that guy might be might be older, maybe his kids are grown, maybe he doesn't have a family. So just that whole thing of like putting Production first. You got to be really careful with what you ask of people. You know, I think I think 90% of the people working in that field anyway, that's what they do. But you got to be real careful with sort of forcing it on people because that's how that's how marriages end. You know, that's how marriages end. That's how people get estranged from their kids and stuff like that. And and this movie really speaks to me of that. It's always trying to constantly strike that balance. And it's hard. It's challenging. You've got to re-examine that every day. But for me, this movie will always be special if only for that. It's just that this movie really drives that home. And this is decades ago and nothing, you know, those those sort of themes are the same. And that, that it hasn't changed is really, it means something.
0: Right on. Yeah. I'm glad that we did this episode. It's a great movie. I'm excited to introduce it to everyone. As of the time we're recording this, at least in the U S it is on Amazon prime video for free. So you don't have to rent it or buy it, but you can also rent it on the PlayStation store. I saw, and I'm sure it's rentable or purchasable other places as well. Kramer versus Kramer, 1979 Academy award, best picture. So don't sleep on it. Excellent film. going to kick it over to you to wrap up our show with some closing segments.
1: All right, my friend, I'm excited. I'm going to do a little one I thought about this kind of in the zero hour, but I kind of like it. I like it especially attached to this episode, but we'll see if we keep going with it. But for now, we'll keep going. We'll we'll do a little bit, a little sampling, a little taste test if you will. And I call it call sustained or overruled. So, talk oh. about right playing into the courtroom drama, the courtroom scene, the iconic courtroom scene of Kramer versus Kramer was my inspiration for this. So, Kyle, I'm basically going to ask you a question or tell you a statement. You either sustain it, which means ostensibly that you agree, or you could overrule it, in which case you tell me the correct answer in your in your eyes to your mind. Perfect. That makes sense. OK, just a, yes, just a quick definitely. handful. OK, Kyle, I'm going to tell you, Dustin Hoffman gave the best performance in this film.
0: Oh, sustained. Definitely. I yeah. don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. Do you
1: agree. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, hands down. He's so good in this, man. Okay, Kyle, number two. Now, we see that Billy finally, little Billy finally sees, we see some Star Wars items, some toys in his room, but he's mostly seen in the film playing with toys that are cars, trucks, and airplanes, helicopters, stuff like that. Now, is Billy Kramer the worst for not playing with his Star Wars toys?
0: Yeah, sustained. Sustained. Uh, I I found yeah, sustained. I found the. I've f- I've always found the generic toys boring. I I maybe it's because I didn't grow up in that time when you're like just rolling around a Tonka truck or something like that and playing with like some sort of 747 toy. Well, I'm like I don't know. This seems boring as shit. Why don't you go? Why don't you might as well go get one of those those loops and hit it with a stick down a hill. <laughs> just fucking Christ, you know so. I sustain that completely. I mean, he lives in a he lived in the time. It was the burgeoning time but the time of action figures, the time of real vehicles, real toys. And he he blew it. He totally blew it.
1: He to- And I'm old enough to have some of the recognize some of those toy cars like there's a white and red garbage truck like a Buddy L. I don't think it's a Tonka. I think it's like a Buddy L. Yeah, garbage truck toy metal metallic of that era. I had that. I definitely had that exact same toy. So, but the, you know what I love about this movie? It makes me feel. It makes me feel kind of young compared to the, what this. A lot of the stuff we normally talk about because I was so young when this came out. I was little Billy's age, actually, when this came out. So, indeed, indeed. All right, Carl. Let me t- let me hit you with this one. Now, outside of the Kramer trio, the three Kramer characters, I'm going to say that the character of Phyllis, who I just talked about, Phyllis Bernard is the best character in the film outside of those three.
0: What do you think? Uh, overruled. That's a ridiculous answer. <laughs> Jane Alexander, obviously, as Margaret, is the, the best character outside of the Kramers, in my opinion. I appreciate where you're going with that With that answer. It's a great answer. She's got a little sexy something going on in the late 70s, but certainly we only see her for a few minutes, and, or a few moments, really, and then she's gone we got to give a shout out to a continued sustained shout out to gene alexander i think she's very good i was a little a
1: little uh, a little disappointed to see joe beth williams not receive a supporting actor nod for the role but uh i guess it was not <laughs> best
0: <right>. best ass
1: <laughs> that's
0: right you do best see ass. yeah
1: you see her from all angles it's actually pretty interesting she's a she's uh willing to bear it all a young yeah Joe Beth sure. Williams, for sure. But you know who's really good in that scene is little Justin Henry. The way his exchange yes. with her and the way he's kind of talking over her. And she's still trying to clamor on. And he's like, good night. You know, see you later or whatever. And she's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. <laughs> he kind of carries yeah, that seed, too. In his little feedy pajamas.
0: The worst. I hate I hate feedy pajamas. I hate oh,
1: they Oh, the, they were so... Did you have... Did, were you able to escape... The prison of feety pajamas or were, they, were they still a thing when you were little? No, so- no,
0: I had, I definitely had, I had them with the yeah, plastic on the bottom well. of
1: the feet, the white plastic that would chip off. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ah. What was going on with that? Like, why was that a thing? That I, I don't understand this. Stupid. Like, what was so? It's so weird. I, do people still wear pajamas like that? You know what? I think my kids might have. Maybe
1: mom bought them for them. Christmas pajamas that are still, but they're they're made of a different material now. Like they actually breathe. They're actually like of a serviceable cotton. They're not just like little <laughs> ovens, you know, like a little oven. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> the, it's like it's like a rubber. <laughs> it's like a rubber plastic vinyl pajamas. It's so funny. Jesus Christ! Uh, yeah, those things
0: were awful. 70s and 80s. We miss you. All right, Kyle.
1: I'm going to tell you right now best courtroom scene. I really like the courtroom scenes in this in this film, Kramer versus Kramer. They're very good, but I'm going to say best courtroom scene in a film is still
0: A Few Good Men. Hmm. I'll sustain it just because I can't think of anything better. I mean, the A Few Good Men, I mean, that's an iconic uh You Can't Handle the Truth. Of course is what you're referring to, right? Of course. Oh, that yeah. That scene yeah. So so That is I I'm pretty sure I don't. Is it still iconic? Like if you went up to Lily and said, like, you can't handle the truth. Would she have any idea what you were referring to? No, does she know, that that's a reference. She might not know the film, but do they know that that's a reference to something? See, I often wonder that about some things I say where I'm like, does anyone even know what I'm talking about (laughs) anymore? Ah. You know, (laughs) it's a great point. Yeah, because
1: you're talking about 1992. That's the year I graduated from high school. They know. They, I think they think it's just like a catchphrase or a saying. I'm not even sure they think it's referencing anything. How would they
0: know that? You know, they they definitely wouldn't. Remember, in like 1994, you'd be like, "Oh, I just wanted the, to see the, you know, I just want the truth." And be like, "You can't handle the truth." <laughs> it's like how many times did you like get that? Like thousands of times that was said around <laughs> so you. So many you know, times. So still to this day. Oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like I, I just and then there are these references. Obviously, the I learn a lot from being around my nephews, especially down here, our nephews. Where I'm like learning all these things about terminology and references. And I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm only 35. You know, I'm not that <laughs> not old. That
1: old. <laughs> they make you feel old, though.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I am that guy now, you know, that guy that's like totally detached from reality. It's great. <laughs> embrace it. You just got to
1: embrace it. Embrace your Yoda ness. <laughs> all right, my friend. Oh, so where did you come down? You sustained it. Okay. Yeah, I'll
0: sustain it because I can't think of anything better than that. Obviously, that iconic scene.
1: The only other courtroom scene I could think of, and a lot of people talk about this one for being accurate, oddly enough, is uh, my cousin Vinny. Joe, Pes- mm. Joe
0: Pesci, Melissa Tomei. But yeah, I'm trying, to th- I'm trying to think of anything else. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'd... you have things like the Pelican Brief and the firm and stuff like that. But that's, th- th- that's not really what's going on in the court so much as what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah,
1: true. That's true.
0: So, yeah, I'll sustain it for now. I would have to really think about that.
1: All right. So I'll end it with this call. We talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to say for you to either sustain or overrule Ted and Joanna should
0: have gotten back together. I'm going to overrule it just because I think Ted can do better. I think Joanna's I think Joanna's. I think Joanna would be lucky to be back with Ted, but I think Ted should. Move on. I mean, you have to it's a pretty you have to be pretty forgiving. See, because you brought this up about Dustin Hoffman's character. He's pretty. He's pretty magnanimous and congenial, considering everything that's going on around him. Definitely. And I think that does make him sympathetic. He doesn't really break that mold. So he's very kind. You can tell he's a very kind, caring, uh, empathetic person. But he was abandoned by this woman and left for dead, basically, with their son. And. I don't know how you can ever get over that or forgive that. So even if maybe they have maybe they have like a, a session, like a sex session or something like that. But I don't think that they want <laughs> to. Oh yeah, I don't think they want to get back to stuff. Oh, my. Yeah, I don't think they want. Ted can do better than that. I think. What do you what about? So I'm going to overrule that. What do you think?
1: I like that take. I mean, that's a good take. It's hard to argue with. But yeah, I, I mean, with Joanna. It's, it's kind of tragic for me because I think Ted always loved her. I just think he wasn't lit. I just don't think he was a good listener. I think the way he was giving love was the way he thought he should do it. We don't know anything about his parents or his upbringing. He talks about growing up in Brooklyn, but he talks about all the niceties. He doesn't really talk about the dynamic of his family or anything. So talk, you know, learning about Ebbets field and, um, the, the the polo grounds, polo, the polo grounds and egg creams and all that kind of stuff. Isn't really doing anything for us, but I think he really did love her, and I think you see that play out, especially in the courtroom where he's telling her, like, don't say you messed up. Like, no, you didn't mess up type of thing. He just didn't know how to show it. Or, you know, again, like, who knows? He grew up, when he grew up, the gender roles and everything like that, he just, I just think people didn't know better. You know, he just didn't have his listening ears on for some reason. He just wasn't hearing her, which must have been very frustrating for her. I'm not saying it wasn't. But that's what makes it all the more tragic. It probably would be better for them not to get back together because everything seems like it's going to be great now. You know, Ted and Billy have already established that bond. Billy's going to be in his, he's going to be a pig and shit when he finds out he could stay with his dad, I think. And, you know, it gives the mom also the freedom to, you know, do what she wants to do and figure, figure everything out. She says she has, she's in her career. She says she has the good therapist and everything like that. And she, she went on her little self searching journey and her soul searching escapade. But who knows if she was done with it, right? It's better off maybe that uh, she stays in the picture, obviously, for Billy. So he has a a semblance of normalcy. But yeah, I like the Ted Billy duo. I think that works.
0: Yeah. And I I also I don't know that you can take certain things back. Maybe you can, but she does tell him she doesn't love him. That's true. So very true. It's kind of hard. It's hard to take something like that back, I think. Very, very true. my friend. Well, we did it. We
1: did it for our little sustained or overruled segment. Excellent. That was fun. Now, hit me with a dad joke before we go. Okay. Now, Kyle, you guys out there, I have a very special dad joke this week brought to us by our sister, Allie Marie Moriarty, otherwise known as Scoop. You ready for this one? Yes. Please. Brought to me a week or two ago via, via text, and I have to say I liked it, and uh, I told her I was going to use it, so... This might be the first one I'm ever using of somebody else's. I hope you guys enjoy it. Kyle, how did the hipster burn his tongue? I don't know. He drank the coffee before it was cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: pretty good. I like that one. I like that one a lot.
1: Now, I had to change the wording. I I preferred to change the wording of the answer a little bit. So apologies to Scoop. Allie had to change the wording of that answer a little bit. I think she got it from school. They they do a dad joke every morning if I'm understanding correctly on the PA at her school. She's an art teacher at a private school, so that's where I got it from. But I I just preferred to tweak the answer a little bit. You know, maybe that's the writer in me. But that's how I the punchline needed a little a little punching up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you Allie for submitting that. And she did tell me she was going to send you something, and I told her not to tell me what it was. So oh, that's I cool. had totally forgot I had totally forgotten that that was uh, happening. So. Many thanks to our sister, Allie, and many thanks to everyone out there for supporting us and supporting our show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins and also on free feeds. Please leave us nice reviews and tell your friends and family about our show. We really appreciate it. Kramer versus Kramer, 1979. Go watch it now. We'll be back next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co host. You can find me on Twitter at No Taxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash CollinsLastStand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Paul Joyce, Ryan T. Mandel, Jorge Palomino, Enrique Perez, Don Lee, Brad Cooley, SL the FMA, Daniel D'Amour, Patrick Leslie, Jeremy Key, Joey Finelli, Azan, Ben, Michael Vecchio, Morgan Ashley, Miguel A. Brewer, Isaac Wastman, Zach Parsley, Ross Marenka, Jerome Ferreira, Stephen Nieder, Gregory Slavinsky, Bjorn Campbell, and unofficial controller podcast, Andrew Morgan, Constantine Valencia, Nick DeMarco, Jariah King, Homeworld Hub, Shane Rayoum, Mark Boggio, Jonathan Reich, Chad Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Lennon Brixie, Peter Reynolds, Greg Juleff, Spencer Brown. Joe McPartland Eric Finkenbeiner Lou and Ray Loper Josh Bushing, Betty Ann Moriarty John Schultz David Chestnut Tony Zuniga Alex Cabrera Corey Wyatt Adam Nix Michael Gates Alex Gates Sean Chandler Petro Rose Justin Wagaman Tyler Harris Toby Schutman Mad Mock Media Lawrence F Procop Toothless Gibbon Martin Beck Donnie Nolan Todd Paxton Josh Yeager Miranda Grubba Michael S Marius Garson Peterson William O'Carroll Mike Wayne Mubarak Gerald Pennington Phil Crone Dylan Burns Brian Chan Connor Gashian Throw 7 Josh Gravelik Tyler Bellow Anton K. Sean Battershall, Gio Corsi, Josh McKinney, Alan Tremblay, James Kinslow III, John Cordero, Organic Produce, Carl Tolman, Richter86, Nathan R., Joshua Smallwood, McDog 18 Patrick Carper, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Ryan R. Kittredge, Barrett Boswell, Hugo's Desk, Chris Buston, Sean Mason, Damon Weathers, Matthew Perdue, Jesse Owen, Chris Galvin, Ryan Murdoch, Colin Davenport, Blake Israel, Sci-Fi Book Club, Antti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Scott Lovelace, Andrew Parker, Robbie Hensley, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Gavin, Bloody Fang, Eric Harden, Matt Martin, Mason Cadillac, Richard Hebert III, Saul Balcazar, Raul Melendez, Kevin Komaki, Of Fortuna, Boots, megadet TB Lightning, Galja, Darren Gardner, Darryl E. Neyman, David Castanes, Greg Lada, Christopher DeVaio, Ray Leja, Jay Getter, Vexius, JJ Game, Jeff McCardo, Zach Bonham, Colin Jewell, Nelson LeBlanc, Daniel Johnson, Lateriant Johnson, Nick Thornton, and Casual Misfits Gaming.